Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with some old familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story, A Curious Experience, by Mark Twain. This is the story which the Major told me, as far as I can recall it. In the winter of 1862 or 3, I was coming down to Fort Trumbull at New London, Connecticut. Maybe our life there was not so brisk as life at the front. Still, it was brisk enough in its way. One's brains didn't cake together there for a lack of something to keep them stirring. For one thing, all the northern atmosphere at the time was thick with mysterious rumors. Rumors to the effect that rebel spies were flitting everywhere and getting ready to blow up our northern forts, burn our hotels, send infected clothing into our towns and all that sort of thing. You remember it. All this had a tendency to keep us awake and knock the traditional dullness out of garrison life. Besides, ours was a recruiting station, which is the same as saying we hadn't any time to waste in dozing or dreaming or fooling around. Why, with all our watchfulness, 50% of a day's recruits would leak out of our hands and give us a slip the same night. The bounties were so prodigious that a recruit could pay a sentinel three or four hundred dollars to let him escape, and still have enough of his bounty money left to constitute a fortune for a poor man. Yes, as I said before, our life was not drowsy. Well, one day I was in my quarters alone, doing some writing when a pale and ragged lad of fourteen or fifteen entered, made a neat bow, and said, I believe recruits are received here. Yes. Will you please enlist me, sir? Dear me, no, you are too young, my boy, and too small. A disappointed look came into his face and quickly deepened into an expression of despondency. He turned slowly away as if to go, hesitated, then faced me again and said, in a tone which went to my heart, I have no home and not a friend in the world. If you could only enlist me. But of course the thing was out of the question, and I said so as gently as I could. Then I told him to sit down by the stove and warm himself, and added, You shall have something to eat presently. You are hungry. He did not answer. He did not need to. The gratitude in his big soft eyes was more eloquent than any words could have been. He sat down by the stove, and I went on writing. Occasionally I took a furtive glance at him. I noticed that his clothes and shoes, although soiled and damaged, were of good style and material. This fact was suggestive. To it I added the fact that his voice was low and musical, his eyes deep and melancholy, his carriage and address gentlemanly. Evidently the poor chap was in trouble. As a result, I was interested. However... I became absorbed in my work. By and by, and I forgot all about the boy. I don't know how long this lasted, but at length, 
I happened to look up. The boy's back was toward me, but his face was turned in such a way that I could see one of his cheeks, and down that cheek a rill of noiseless tears was flowing. God bless my soul, I said to myself. I forgot the poor rat was starving. Then I made amends for my brutality by saying to him, Come along, my lad, you shall dine with me. I am alone today. He gave me another of those grateful looks, and the happy light broke in his face. At the table he stood with his hand on his chair back until I was seated, then seated himself. I took up my knife and fork and, well, I simply held them and kept still, for the boy had inclined his head and was saying a silent grace. A thousand hallowed memories of home and my childhood poured in upon me, and I sighed to think how far I had drifted from religion and its balm for hurt minds, its comfort and solace and support. As our meal progressed, I observed that young Wicklow, Robert Wicklow was his full name, knew what to do with his napkin, and, well, in a word, I observed that he was a boy of good breeding, never mind the details. He had a simple frankness, too, which won upon me. We talked mainly about himself, and I had no difficulty in getting his history out of him. When he spoke of his having been born and reared in Louisiana, I warmed to him decidedly, for I had spent some time down there. I knew all the coast region of the Mississippi and loved it, and had not been long enough away from it for my interest in it to begin to pale. The very names that fell from his lips sounded good to me, so good that I steered the talk in directions that would bring them out. Baton Rouge, Plaquemine, Donaldsonville, Sixty Mile Point, Bonnecar, the stock landing, Carrollton, the steamship landing, the steamboat landing, New Orleans, Chapatula Street, the Esplanade, the Rue de Bon Enfant, the St. Charles Hotel, the Tivoli Circle, the Shell Road, Lake Pontchartrain, and and it was particularly delightful for me to hear once more of the R.E. Lee, the Natchez, the Eclipse, the General Quitman, the Duncan F. Kenner, and other old familiar steamboats. It was almost as good as being back there, these names so vividly reproduced in my mind, the look of the things they stood for. Briefly, this was little Wicklow's history. When the war broke out, he and his invalid aunt and his father were living near Baton Rouge, on a great and rich plantation which had been in the family for fifty years. The father was a union man. He was persecuted in all sorts of ways, but clung to his principles. At last, one night, masked men burned his mansion down, and the family had to fly for their lives. They were hunted from place to place, and learned all there was to know about poverty, hunger, and distress. The invalid aunt found relief at last. Misery and exposure killed her. She died in an open field like a tramp, the rain beating upon her and the thunder booming overhead. Not long afterward, the father was captured by an armed band, and while the son begged and pleaded, the victim was strung up before his face. At this point, a baleful light shone in the youth's eyes, and he said, with the manner of one who talks to himself, If I cannot be enlisted, no matter. I shall find a way. I shall find a way. As soon as the father was pronounced dead, the son was told that if he was not out of that region within 24 hours, it would go hard with him, 
That night he crept to the riverside and hid himself near a plantation landing. By and by the Duncan F. Kenner stopped there, and he swam out and concealed himself in the yawl that was dragging at her stern. Before daylight the boat reached a stock landing and he slipped ashore. He walked the three miles which lay between that point and the house of an uncle of his in Good Children Street in New Orleans, and then his troubles were over for the time being. But this uncle was a union man, too, and before very long he concluded that he had better leave the South. So he and young Wicklow slept out of the country on board a sailing vessel, and in due time reached New York. They put up at the Astor House. Young Wicklow had a good time of it for a while, strolling up and down Broadway and observing the strange northern sights. But in the end a change came, and not for the better. The uncle had been cheerful at first, but now he began to look troubled and despondent. Moreover, he became moody and irritable, talked of money giving out and no way to get more, not enough left for one, let alone two. Then one morning he was missing, did not come to breakfast. The boy inquired at the office and was told that the uncle had paid his bill the night before and gone away. To Boston, the clerk believed, but was not certain. The lad was alone and friendless. He did not know what to do, but concluded that he had better try to follow and find his uncle. He went down to the steamboat landing, learned that the trifle of money in his pocket would not carry him to Boston. However, it would carry him to New London, so he took passage for that port, resolving to trust to Providence to furnish him means to travel the rest of the way. He had now been wandering about the streets of New London three days and nights, getting a bite and a nap here and there for charity's sake. But he had given up at last. Courage and hope were both gone. If he could enlist, nobody could be more thankful. If he could not get in as a soldier, couldn't he be a drummer boy? Ah, he would work so hard to please and would be so grateful. Well, there's the story of young Wicklow, just as he told it to me, barring details. I said, my boy, you are among friends now. Don't you be troubled any more. How his eyes glistened. I called in Sergeant John Rayburn. He was from Hartford. He lives in Hartford yet. Maybe you know him. And said, Rayburn, quarter this boy with the musicians. I'm going to enroll him as a drummer boy, and I want you to look after him and see that he is well treated. Well, of course, intercourse between the commandant of the post and the drummer boy came to an end. Well, but the poor little friendless chap lay heavy on my heart just the same. I kept on the lookout, hoping to see him brighten up and begin to be cheery, but no. The days went by and there was no change. He associated with nobody, he was always absent-minded, always thinking. His face was always sad. One morning, Rayburn asked leave to speak to me privately. Said he, I hope I don't offend, sir, but the truth is, the musicians are in such a sweat, it seems as if somebody's got to speak. Why, what is the trouble? It's the Wicklow boy, sir. The musicians are down on him to an extent you can't imagine. Well, go on, go on. What has he been doing? Praying, sir. Praying? Yes, sir. The musicians haven't any piece of their life for that boy's praying. First thing in the morning he's had it, noons he's had it, and nights. 
On nights, he just lays into him like all possessed. Sleep? Bless you, they can't sleep. He's got the floor, as the saying is. And then when he once gets his supplication mill a-going, there just simply ain't any let up to him. He starts in with the bandmaster, and he prays for him. Next, he takes the head bugler, and he prays for him. Next, the bass drum, and he scoops him in, and so on, right straight through the band, giving him all a show and taking that amount of interest in it which would make you think he thought he weren't but a little while for this world and believed he couldn't be happy in heaven without a pair of and believed he couldn't be happy in heaven without a brass band along and wanted to pick him out for himself so he could depend on them to do with his national tunes in a style suiting to the place. Well, sir, even boots at him don't have no effect. It's dark in there, and besides, he don't pray fair anyway. But kneels down behind the big drum, so it don't make no difference if there ain't boots at him. He don't care. Warbles right along, same as if it was applause. They sing out, oh, dry up, give it a rest, shoot him, oh, take a walk, and all sorts of things. But what of it? Don't faze him. He don't mind it. After a pause, kind of a good little fool, too, gets up in the morning and carts all that stock of boots back and sorts them out and sets each man's pair where they belong. And they've been thronged at him so much now that he knows every boot in the band can sort them out with his eyes shut. After another pause, which I forbore to interrupt, but the roughest thing about it is that when he's done praying, when he ever does get done, he pipes up and begins to sing. Well, you know what a honey kind of a voice he's got when he talks. You know how it will persuade a cast-iron dog to come down off a doorstep and lick his hand. Now, if you'll take my word for it, sir, it ain't a circumstance with singing. Flute music is harsh to that boy singing. Oh, he just gurgles it out so soft and sweet and low there in the dark that it makes you think you are in heaven. What is there rough about that? Oh, that's just it, sir. You hear him sing just as I am. Poor, wretched, blind. You just hear him sing that once and see if you don't melt all up and the water come into your eyes. I don't care what he sings. It goes plumb straight home to you. It goes deep down to where you live and it fetches you every time. Just you hear him sing, child of sin and sorrow filled with dismay. Wait not till tomorrow yield thee today. Grieve not that love which from above and so on. It makes a body feel like the wickedest, ungratefulest brute that walks. And when he sings them songs of his about home and mother and childhood and old memories and Things that's vanished and old friends dead and gone. Why, it fetches everything before your face that you've ever loved and lost in all your life. It's just beautiful. It's just divine to listen to. But Lord, the heartbreak of it. The band, well, they all cry. Every rascal of them blubbers. And don't try to hide it either. And first you know that very gang that's been slamming boots at that boy will skip out of their bunks all of a sudden and rush over in the dark and hug him. Yes, they do, and slobber all over him and call him pet names and beg him to forgive them. And just at that time, if a regiment was to offer to hurt a hair of that cub's head, they'd go for that regiment if it was a whole army corps. Another pause. Is that all? said I. Yes, sir. Well, dear me, what's the complaint? What do they want done? Done? 
Why, bless you, sir, they want you to stop him from singing. What an idea. You said his music was divine. That's just it. It's too divine. Mortal man can't stand it. It stirs a body up so. It turns a body inside out. Racks his feelings all to rags. It makes him feel bad and wicked and not fit for any place but perdition. It keeps a body in such an everlasting state of repentance that nothing don't taste good and there ain't no comfort in life. And then the crying, you see. Every morning they're ashamed to look one another in the face. Well, this is an odd case and a singular complaint. So they really want the singing stopped? Yes, sir, that is the idea. They don't wish to ask too much. They would like powerful well to have the praying shut down on, or leastways trimmed off round the edges, but the main thing's the singing. If they can only get the singing choked off, they think they can stand the praying. Rough as it is to be bully-ragged so much that way. I told the sergeant I would take the matter under consideration. That night I crept into the musician's quarters and listened. The sergeant had not overstated the case. I heard the praying voice pleading in the dark. I heard the execrations of the harassed men. I heard the rain of boots whiz through the air and bang and thump around the big drum. The thing touched me, but it amused me too. By and by, after an impressive silence, came the singing. Lord, the pathos of it, the enchantment of it. Nothing in the world was ever so sweet. So gracious, so tender, so holy, so moving. I made my stay very brief. I was beginning to experience emotions of a sort not proper to the commandant of a fortress. Next day, I issued orders which stopped the praying and singing. Then followed three or four days which were so full of bounty-jumping excitements and irritations that I never once thought of my drummer boy. But now comes Sergeant Rayburn one morning, and he says, that new boy acts mighty strange, sir. How? Well, sir, he's all the time writing. Writing? What does he write? Letters? I don't know, sir, but whenever he's off duty, he's always poking and nosing around the fort all by himself. Blessed if I think there's a hole or corner in it he hasn't been into. And every little while he outs with pencil and paper and Scribble something down. This gave me a most unpleasant sensation. I wanted to scoff at it, but it was not a time to scoff at anything that had the least suspicious tinge about it. Things were happening all around us. Things were happening all around us in the north then that warned us to be always on the alert and always suspecting. I recalled to mind the suggestive fact that this boy was from the south, the extreme south, Louisiana and the thought was not of a reassuring nature under the circumstances. Nevertheless, it cost me a pang to give the orders which I now gave to Rayburn. I felt like a father who plots to expose his own child to shame and injury. I told Rayburn to keep quiet, bide his time, and get me some of those writings whenever he could manage it without the boys finding it out. And I charged him not to do anything which might let the boy discover that he was being watched. I also ordered that he allow the lad his usual liberties, but that he be followed at a distance when he went out into the town. During the next two days, Rayburn reported to me several times. No success. 
The boy was still writing, but he always pocketed his paper with a careless air whenever Rayburn appeared in his vicinity. He had gone twice to an old deserted stable in the town, remained a minute or two, and come out again. One could not poo-poo these things. They had an evil look. I was obliged to confess to myself that I was getting uneasy. I went into my private quarters and sent for my second-in-command, an officer of intelligence and judgment, son of General James Watson Webb. He was surprised and troubled. We had a long talk over the matter and came to the conclusion that it would be worthwhile to institute a secret search. I determined to take charge of that myself. We'll return with our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the lookout for great public domain stories like this one to feature on the show. If you know of any, please let me know. BigVoiceJ at gmail.com We're also on YouTube, tiny.cc slash Bedtime. Don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. It helps to spread the word that we're putting people to sleep every single night. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>